and welcome to an all-new episode of 13, the bi-weekly podcast that asks 13 questions of Colgate University community members. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming to the studio three individuals responsible for Colgate's Office of Equity and Diversity, including Vice President of Equity and Inclusion, Renee Madison, Director for Campus Culture and Inclusion, Rodney Agnett, and Director for Diversity and Equity, Amari Simpson. So welcome you, welcome all of you to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I'm going to quick uh, read the mission statement for your office to kind of set the stage here, and then I'll have each of you introduce yourselves to the audience. So the mission statement is understanding diversity and building a diverse campus community through respect and inclusion are fundamental to Colgate's mission. The university ensures compliance with policies relating to affirmative action, discrimination, and harassment. A variety of cultures and perspectives enriches the quality of campus life, and the opportunity to share different views and experiences is at the core of Colgate's educational enterprise. Colgate is committed to attracting and retaining a diverse faculty, staff, and student population. We strive to be an inclusive community, one that embraces and values diversity in an environment of mutual respect, communication, and engagement. We acknowledge that in order to fulfill our aspirations, we must free ourselves from personal biases, ingrained social stereotypes, and institutionalized forms of discrimination. While we recognize that there are challenges in the experience of diversity, we seek to face them in a spirit of growth and learning. It's really nice. Thank you. Yeah. So maybe we'll start with Renee. Um, Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how long you've been at Colgate? Yeah, so I grew up in the Midwest, living mostly in Indiana and Illinois, and uh, went to a liberal arts undergrad institution. So that's where I began my love for the liberal arts education. After I graduated from college, I worked at the prosecutor's office in Indianapolis, and I was a domestic violence prosecutor for quite a period of time. I spent about 10 years total uh, with that office. And then I moved to the NCAA, where I worked in um, equity in sports, so in the enforcement division there. And that's really where I began my work with um, climate and culture internally. We had some things that um, we needed to work on there. And um, I'm very passionate about everyone feeling valued and respected and included. And that led to my position at DePaul University, where I was senior advisor to the president for uh, diversity and compliance. And I oversaw uh, strategic initiatives for DEI there. I also oversaw HR and uh, and included in our DEI work was uh, I was the Title IX coordinator as well. And after I left DePaul, I went to work at the city of Indianapolis, and I uh, oversaw human resources for the city of Indianapolis. We employ about um, 7,500 employees, and then also oversaw the mayor's racial equity initiatives, and then also worked with many um, counselors and county uh, elected leaders as well. 
and I really miss higher ed. <laughs> um, and so I uh, am thrilled to join Colgate. I have been here for about two years now. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Amari, would you like to tell us about yourself? Yes. Um, I, too, am a Midwesterner. Um, there must be something that Colgate is doing to attract us directly. Um, I'm born and raised from Chicago. Um, I had also the opportunity to fall in love with the liberal arts college. Um, my undergrad was at Middlebury College. Um, during that time, I did experience what I think most of our students may be, um, or some of our students may be navigating around um, just figuring out what you want to do with your life and how will you be able to do that really well. Um, I was sort of the product of many, many STEM pre-college programs where I was told and I believe and I, I uh, drank the, the pot of soup that I would be a, a physician, scientist, or an MD-PhD. Um, but I very quickly sort of learned after a number of experiences that that was a direction I didn't want to pursue. And so um, thinking about what I've ended up falling in love with, which was the liberal arts um, education, I ultimately pursued um, a PhD in higher education. Um, I really leveraged my previous experiences in those STEM pre-college programs to um, end up being what was my dissertation work, um, exploring how those programs impacted people regardless of whether they pursued a, a STEM career or major um, or not. And I, that's really sort of where the heart of DEI sort of started for me, uh, connecting, loving education, being able to document and really acknowledge the, the work that was poured into me for those STEM pre-college programs. Um, and think about long term, how can we have an impact on folks who are pursuing STEM careers and majors? Um, you may be wondering, that's not what I'm actively doing, but I do get to do that in a, a little nestled work. Um, but the work of DEI for me really is about how to continue to have folks like myself um, be a part of the conversation. Um, how are we reimagining the ways in which we're engaging with each other, um, charting that future where um, all of the hopes and ideals of what came across in our, our mission statement um, are lived on a day-to-day -day practice. And so um, my Chicago upbringing, my STEM pre-college programs, my liberal arts background um, for undergrad really set me on a course to, to this work. Um, and I, in between um, graduating, um, have been a teacher um, in my past life and also have also um, worked as a student activities um, associate director and have done some equity and diversity work at previous higher education institutions. Nice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. On to Rodney, our resident alumnus. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, you know, spoiler alert, alum, and uh, definitely we'll talk about that for a moment. But yeah, originally from Brooklyn, New York, born and raised, uh, come from an immigrant family that originated in Haiti. And uh, my siblings and I were all first generation when it came to going to college. So I was grateful for them to, to help pave the way for me. And yeah, I got to, to Colgate as an undergraduate fall 2010. So 13 is our lucky number, and so literally 13 years ago, I was here as a, a young 17-year-old trying to find his way, and what I found really interesting about being here was that throughout my, my schooling in Brooklyn, I always found myself in these really diverse spaces. My elementary school was majority black, and then my middle school um, was predominantly black and Latinx, and then 
high school is predominantly uh, Asian, uh, mostly of Chinese descent. And then suddenly I was here. And so now the, the world just continued opening up for me. Hmm. And getting to, to meet people of so many different kind of backgrounds, I, I found myself interested in, in people and their cultures and their experiences. And that shaped a lot of my, my liberal arts education here. I ended up being a French major and psychology minor, which at the time was a perfect combination of what are you going to do with that? And afterwards, I actually spent a few years working in consulting companies where we were looking at the first company primarily, what is the psychological capital of leaders? When we're looking at the sort of senior leaders of organizations, what are the strengths that they bring to the table? And then also understanding that sometimes the things that we have as strengths, we maybe over-index in and we need to learn how can I balance my strengths with yours so that we can produce the results that matter to us. And the second company I ended up working with focused more on organizational culture. So we might have these senior leaders that are helping to, to set the direction, but the norms that we have on the grounds really shape that day-to-day experience of who feels trusted, who feels as though they, they belong in their organizations, and how does that affect their workflows. Hmm. So I, an opportunity opened up to work at Chapel House at Colgate, and I started working there in November 2016, so getting to the seven-year mark now of being on campus. And that experience was really interesting because here we had a pocket of campus that was willing and open to serve anyone on campus. We wanted to bring in more students. We wanted to support staff and faculty. Also, we had people from all around the country and different parts of the world coming to be on retreat to reflect on their cultural and sometimes religious experiences and then to be able to see what they wanted to do with that time on retreat to bring back into the rest of their lives. And being there gave me an opportunity to think about leadership in a different way and to consider how can I help bring this sort of contemplative aspect of Chapel House to the rest of campus because it was doing this work of diversity in a really unique way. It was allowing people to tap into their identities that were most meaningful to them and to see how they wanted to live that out outside of a a small retreat space that we have. So it's been really exciting to bring all these experiences and more to now the work that we get to do when we're looking at campus culture and looking at inclusion. So there's a a real focus on sort of leadership and social norms that I'm super passionate about. And then Amari and I often joke that I also am a double alum. I got to do my master's here during my time at Chapel House, so from 2020 to 2023. And so I used my, the research opportunity to look at transformational leadership with the hopes that it could help me think through how to do this kind of work whenever an opportunity like this would present itself. But now I'm about getting close to a year within this role and super thrilled to get to be here. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. You did leave out your 2022 Staff Excellence Award. You know. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think a good place to start is um, – kind of talking about what diversity, equity, and inclusion is, and particularly in light of the public conversation, there's a lot of argument about it. There's a lot of, um, I'm going to guess, misrepresentation of what it may be, or confusion, or maybe, um, yeah, I think just, it might be just a lack of understanding or um, misperceptions. And I would be curious to hear from from you folks, um, what is it, and how does Colgate go about working on 
issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion on campus? And I realize that is a very large question. So um, top level here to start. Okay. So um, as I think about what does diversity, equity, and inclusion mean to Colgate in particular? And um, we have a DEI plan uh, that is a, a a plan that goes into more depth, separate and apart from President Casey's third century plan. Um, but DEI, are there are values. And that is how we as an office staff talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. So what does that mean then? Um, there are different frameworks that we think about diversity um, diversity of geography, of race and ethnicity, of religion, of um, gender or sexual identity, and all of these things that um, are part of who we are and how we're perceived in the world. And we know that there are historical barriers, historical practices and policies that have prevented um, equity of access. So when we think about, um, uh, I mentioned Title IX earlier and equity in sports, right? And that was the uh, the impetus to Title IX in, in the 70s was so that every investment that we made in sports um, with uh, whether you competed on a men's team or a women's team would be equitable, that um, universities needed to fund sports in the same ways. And so um, when we think about equity, we can think about it through a, a policy lens as well as an experience lens. And that leads to the inclusion of um, do we all feel like um, we are a part of this experience here at Colgate University? Um do I feel like I am Colgate? And who is Colgate? Um, we talk about, um, you know, the 13 points of a Colgate education. And you see diversity, equity, and inclusion as themes and threads through all of that. Um, I think we find ourselves in a place today where there's a lot of fear, a lot of noise, a lot of accusations and shaming and um, it it has has created tribalism where we're all going into our um, places that we we think are safe um, because we share the same views about the world and uh, the same experiences that, um, well, this experience is valuable and important and meaningful. And um, I, I think you from a, another group that I disagree with or I don't understand are trying to prevent my experience from being valuable or meaningful. And as we have conversations across campus, um, we really focus on our values and what connects us as a community. 
um, being able to have the privilege to be on a campus like this where we have incredible faculty uh, who are top in their field, who care about teaching in addition to their their research and their their service. Um, this is such a, uh, a unique education uh, for the students that get to come here. But we have staff who are supporting our students outside of the classroom and um, uh, you know, working in service for our alumni and keeping the engagement with the Colgate community um, and Hamilton Village. And I think that when we encounter situations where uh, somebody may push back against a, a concept or an idea, we take the time to be curious. Um, Really ask questions. What do you mean? And um, are, are we really saying something different? And you can't do that in a 40-character world. Um, and that's what we're exposed to on social media, even the news. I mean, it's really difficult to go um, in into a, a, a concept or um, a you know, a framework in a, in a deep and meaningful way. And one of the reasons why I, I really enjoy working with the OED team in general, um, it's an amazing group of folks. Rodney and Amari um, are, are no different. I, I love engaging in conversation and, you know, working through a set of issues or problems with them. Um you know, we're, we're thinking about the culture. We're thinking about the impact, not only on, um, it, you know, from, from one perspective. It's trying to think through all of the perspectives and how does this impact our community. Mm-hmm. So that's that cultural work. And then there's compliance work. And that is much more policy-driven. And, uh, you know, whether it's discrimination and harassment or Title IX violations, um, those are those are things that our office also supports with um, reports that may come to our office that we'll need to investigate and then um, have either a formal or, or an informal resolution process. It's a lot. And <clears throat> I think even at first blush, it's like, how do you approach such a big task, right? Um how do you break that down into components where you're putting things into action or you're trying to um, move the needle in one direction or another? I know you have a report, your uh, your DEI kind of plan for the university. It's something you've been working on. Um, but I'm curious, like, in the day-to-day or um, in, in your planning sessions, how you go about, like, we're going to address this, or is it more broad? Um. So we are undergoing um, a an, an update of the DEI plan. So it was published in uh, the work began in 2018, published in 2019. Um, we've lived through a pandemic. We've lived and maybe not all the way through it, but we've gotten through the the, the lockdown phase yeah. of the pandemic. Um, and uh, much more national media attention on 
um, uh, particularly after uh, the murder of George Floyd, um, really thinking about policing and uh, different experiences that communities of color have in um, uh, uh, in interacting with the police. And uh, we we're in a different place uh, here at Colgate than we were in in 2019 um, before I I came on board. Um, and our our plan needs to reflect that. Um, and there are opportunities to include um, capturing what is happening in the academic program, which was not in the first iteration mm-hmm. of the DEI plan. Um, but uh, circling back to the question of, well, so what does it mean? Because we are, um, it, you know, if I'm looking from purely an um, intellectual view, like we are a complex organization and we are a, uh, a community. And so when you think about a complex organization and a community um, with a, a great deal of diverse representation, um, you really need to think in that complex way. And so the next iteration of the DEI plan, we are thinking through um, three major themes, which is the student experience, uh, what is the student experience academically um, in the complexity of the academic program? Uh, what is the experience um, outside of the classroom? And how are we thinking about our policies um, related to access and support for success in, in the classroom and outside of the classroom? And then uh, the second uh, component of the DEI plan is the faculty and staff experience. How are we attracting um, talented faculty and staff that represent the diversity of the world uh, that will be preparing or who will be preparing our students to go out and be the leaders that we expect them to be with a Colgate education? Um, and so all of the elements of the faculty and staff experience that are critical to our student success. And then what is the Colgate community experience? Um, what's our relationship like with the village? What are the things that we're thinking about that make us um, whole members of the community in Colgate University as well as our surrounding community? And um, when we start to break things down and in those types of components, I think that's where we are able to really um, dissect the complexity of the DEI work that we're doing. Interesting. What are the ways that Colgate works to support students, um, either from underrepresented groups um, or um, different backgrounds, you know, for, I'm thinking about like first generation students, but also students from, like I said, uh, underrepresented groups. Do we have special programs? Are you folks involved in those programs and the development of them? Curious. We're such a good team. We're looking at each other like, who wants to jump in? One, <laughs> one of the places that I'll start with is that we have our DEI advisory board, right? That though we have our Office of Equity and Diversity we understand that living out these values, it can't just be our office. It really needs to be our campus partners as well. And we have campus partners who have been taking the lead in in supporting students in a few of the ways that you've mentioned. So, for instance, we have our First at Colgate program. And 
what they do there is that they offer opportunities for students who are first generation to be able to come to campus early when they're incoming students to start getting acclimated to the experience here and learning more about what is it going to mean for them to be able to thrive. And then throughout the year, they do different programs, some that are going to be more academic focused, that folks are getting additional skill building that's going to support them, um, as well as opportunities to connect with each other, social experiences, because we understand that when a student is coming here, they are coming for their educational experience. They're also transplanting themselves into this environment. That sure. Suddenly, this is a second home for them. And their ability to, to feel as though they belong here really is important. There's research that points out that when a, a student of a maybe an underrepresented identity has a sense of belonging, their GPA is likely to be higher than if there is a sense of, I'm not sure if I belong here, and then I'm going through the adjustments that a first year goes through in terms of suddenly you're taking classes that may either be equally as hard or harder than the ones that you were taking before, you're adjusting to a new climate. And so we have the first at Colgate program, we have our Office of Undergraduate Scholars as well, that usually works with a group of students, especially during that summer period right before their first year, where they're getting to meet with professors and learn more about themselves and the community that's here and the resources that are available. And I so love that we have these programs here because I know for me, when I came here, I wasn't clear on what are all the resources that are available. And it was the conversations with faculty, the conversations with staff, letting me know, for instance, oh, if you were to do something such as going abroad, Colgate will support you with tuition aid to be able to, to do that. If it wasn't for that knowledge, I would have never applied to go abroad. And my first time leaving this country was to go to France and study for four months and be completely immersed in a different culture. So those are some of the initial programs that come to mind in terms of the ways that we think about supporting stu students and sort of scaffolding their experience. I want to turn to Amari to see what are other pieces that we want to highlight from the work that we're seeing the DEI Advisory Board do, as well as other pieces that we're seeing. Yeah, in addition to that, um, one that comes to mind as well that we partner a lot with, but is to Rodney's point, um, we allow um, and support the autonomy that comes with the leadership over this program. But the Colgate Stars is a, a very recent initiative um, through our folks in our natural sciences uh, division. And that work looks like supporting um, folks who um, have various backgrounds um, of expertise and, and experience in um, STEM fields, um, but in particular would benefit from extra mentoring, extra um, support from their peers, um, and really have some foundational experiences within research to continue on their STEM interests and, and careers. And so um, there's been some excellent work that has come with taking that time to be intentional with how can we, um, to Renee's point, be thinking about the uh, equity piece to things and, and be intentional around supporting what students and um, obtain experiences um, to Rodney's point, as well as having the knowledge to um, simply taking advantage of office hours or being able to be cognizant of uh, different resources and experiences that can really add to the flavor and the texture of um, our Colgate students, especially those who pursue STEM careers. And so that has been um, really a, a unique and, and nice program to be able to support and be able to, to observe their growth. Um, but then um, it, it goes unsaid, but there is continued and amazing work that our colleagues are doing in the Alana Cultural Center and our LGBTQ initiatives world 
um, in our Center for Women's Studies where um, there's a host of, of weekly programs. Um, those folks um, don't get enough sleep uh, leading all of them, <laughs> but um, our students are really being able to tap into and engage in some very critical and important conversations around um, you know, what does it mean to think about this in the context of Colgate? And then what does it mean to also connect this to the reality that Colgate sits <laughs> in the United States and, and sits in our global community? And how do folks take this out into their respective homes, their neighborhoods, their respective families and, and communities? And so, um, yeah, we we are in awe in our, um, those meetings are usually biweekly, the DEI advisory uh, meeting, but in all, all the work that is happening on campus um, and the admissions work, um, just last thing to mention, they are also doing incredible work connecting with folks um, prior to coming to Colgate, really creating those conditions to um, show folks that um, they can make a home out of Colgate and, and what does that home look like? And so um, sharing that, the opportunity to come to campus and being able to have that fully sponsored by admissions um, and, and by Colgate and being able to connect with our students, with our faculty, um, and, and see what does the Hamilton greater area um, be able to provide to um, not only the students, but their families. And so um, really incredibly proud of all the work that all of our, our, our colleagues are doing. Um, and we, in many ways, are centralizing sort of the resource and, and knowledge of, of folks being aware of what's happening in, in our respective areas, but then also where we can offering that strategic support and um, framing for furthering the work that they've um, done so beautifully. I love the community building um, component of that is really so great. And I'm curious, um, you know, the Office of Equity and Diversity has only been around for a couple of years, right? I mean, relatively new office. Um, in that short amount of time, what are the things you're most proud of that your office has worked on um, or things that could even be in process? It doesn't have to be a completed thing, you're, you know, you, um, but I'm just curious what you are most proud of um, in your time there. Yeah, so um, when I arrived at Colgate a couple of years ago, um, it, it was myself and then there was an assistant. We had a Title IX coordinator and then the associate provost for equity and diversity. And, and that's a role that um, works very closely with the Office of Equity and Diversity and the provost and dean of the faculty office. And um, two of those folks left. <laughs> And so it was down to myself and the associate provost for equity and diversity last year, and um, and and Rodney came on board, uh, Kelly came on board, uh, and uh, started overseeing the the office administration. Um, so so we had um, we respond to a number of. Uh, complaints and or concerns related to discrimination and harassment, um, as well as uh, sexual harassment, assault, um, any type of stalking concerns, mm -hmm. anything that falls under the, the Title IX uh, compliance. And um, it was a lot for us to juggle. And during that time last year, we also were conducting uh, national searches for uh, the position that uh, we ultimately hired Amari for, um, the Title IX coordinator, as well as an investigator for the office. And I am uh, 
honored every day to work with this team. Um, it is an incredible team that we all push each other in different ways. We see the world very differently, but there is so much respect for the other's perspective and it really enhances the work that we all do. And then um, at, at, as we were finishing up the search processes, there was also a little bit of a restructure. So um, student disability services that has been in the Center for Teaching and Learning and Research, um, that has now moved into the Office of Equity and Diversity, not physically, just conceptually. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Um, and so um, having um, our, our colleagues with Student Disability Services that is thinking, uh, we're thinking about um, uh, accommodations and access um, uh, you know, uh, universal learning design and um, academic adjustments. So there's a compliance piece there, but there's also a cultural piece. And so it's, it's um, to me, only enhanced our office in, in ways that I find um, really, really incredible. So the, the team and, and building the team is something that um, has been a really great um, experience for me. And um, as we are now getting rolling and getting traction with all of the work that's um, happening, um, we are able to support the community so much better with the resources that we have. Um, whether it's training that Rodney's doing or Amari's doing or I'm doing or um, uh, trying to uh, work out uh, tension and conflict that is occurring, um, it, you know, in uh, maybe staff or faculty or among students. And it's um, really that, that care for community um, that you see reflected in our work. And I think that um, the other piece that we're in progress right now, but the DEI plan is something that I'm very, very excited about as well. I usually don't like to inject myself into this, but you did a training for the Office of Communications. Yes. Um, and you had us fill out a survey. I forget the name of it. You can tell me. But you had us fill out this thing, and it, it generated a report about our personality and how we interact with other personalities. And it was frighteningly accurate. Yes. And everyone in our office was shocked at how well it mirrored how we really thought of ourselves and our and how yeah. we work with people. But also – it was some good insight as to like how our styles, our management style or our work styles might interact with people who have very different work styles. And it was a very interesting exercise. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is where I'm, I'm really excited about our in inclusive leadership series where we're thinking about insightful leadership, which is the one that you're referencing, the insights training that I did. Um, adaptable leadership and transformational leadership um, that uh, Rodney and Amari are, are delivering. And one of the things that um, I, I've found historically in the work that I do that um, any type of discussion about identity um, is so personal and um, uh, it, it really is, is something that can be difficult to engage in conversation about. Um, we don't want to be offensive. 
and um, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And um, we 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 may be curious. We may, we may not have had experiences or exposures in in certain ways. And so in order to move us to a place where we can have those types of conversations that I believe that we can have very well here on on this campus, um, but we need to build our tools and our skills to be able to engage in those conversations. And um, Insights helps us to think about the ways that we're wired naturally to process information, um, how we want information delivered to us. And um, learning how to value that, not only with ourselves, um, but having flexibility mm-hmm. to adapt our style um, so that it's effective and we can connect with other people. Um, and it, this is something that we talk about a lot in the team because um, there are uh, a, a, a couple of us that have a particular style and um, preference. So, um, and and then uh, some of us who have the complete opposite, um, according to you know the training yes. that I that I, that I give. And so it's funny because especially when Rodney and I are delivering this together, he and I are are technically opposite. Um, but we're able to model during that training session, here's how you can find that connection and here's how you value those differences. And um, it, it really lays that groundwork for the next stages of the training um, that uh, really help us think about how we're in, in community with one another. I found it incredibly helpful. Great. I thought it was really great. It said it said podcast host on the bottom. Yeah, I, I bet like, it did. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, going to a um, far more serious topic, but um, I'm curious how your office handles concerns or complaints, right? So if a student or a faculty member or a staff member feels that they've been a target of harassment or they feel like they've been mistreated in some way, what do they do? Like what is the process for – seeking assistance from your office? Yeah, so there are several ways to be in touch with us. Um, there you can go to colgate.edu slash concern and fill out a report, whether that be anonymous or non-anonymous, to share some of the concerns that they may be experiencing or that they may be observing for someone else that they are um, concerned about. Um, they can call us directly um, using our telephone number um, that is available on the website. Um, they can alternatively just simply stop by our office at any point that works for them. Um, and what that looks like for us is um, a couple of things. Um, we usually are um, wanting to get to know and understand a little bit more about um, exactly what they're describing, be able to understand the context in a way that's really fruitful. And then we um, we usually um, reiterate our neutrality, our impartiality, um, the ways in which we um, understand our, our policies and procedures, and, and wanting to make sure that they have the information that they have that they need to be successful. Um, but also share that we um, will consult internally and, and be able to understand more about um, on the face value of this case um, if this may. Um, fold or, or lead towards um, a, a policy uh, violation. And um, what that, that translates to um, is a, a couple of um, directions, but I'll, I'll sort of uh, shorten it to say 
um, that um, we really want and encourage folks to know all their options and be able to take full advantage of what they would like. Um, we encourage the autonomy um, where we really want to understand what do people hope to get from their experiences. Um, we're really thinking about the cultural and climate pieces around how do we um, support and respect um, other factors that may be at play. We help individuals to understand effectively um, what may make most sense for what they're experiencing and what what um, what is our policies and procedures. And so um, we um, consult a lot. Um, some may see 100% of the time, um, but um, between um, 80 and 90% on um, what we're understanding a situation is, um, we reach back out um, based on how the person may decide. We may um, support an investigation um, and really help to understand more about the situation from multiple perspectives. Um, and that may lead to a policy um, finding um, or not. Um, and that ultimately leads towards some clear outcomes, whether it be for the individual, for the department in which they're referencing to, or for um, a community that may be impacted by um, our, our finding. And then we work with those individuals or work with those respective um, entities to be sure that we implement what's suggested or that we, we work closely to monitor how um, things are progressing. Um, but I do turn it to, because um, what I didn't admit earlier is that I just hit my half-year mark, um, and I am always actively learning and always um, really excited to, to hear other perspectives. Um, but that is currently how I, <laughs> I work to accomplish um, and, and to support um, folks who experience um, various problems that, they're, um, that, that they experience at Colgate. And your office oversees Title IX, and Title IX isn't just equal representation in athletics, but also it's uh, a guarantee against harassment, right? That law came about in the 70s, right? The original Title IX, and then it has changed through the years, right? I'm curious as to how it has evolved since it was created and how it addresses the current state of the world, and by saying that I mean technology, online harassment, um, cyber stalking, these types of things. Are those all included in Title IX protection? How do you go about handling those types of reports? Right. So we we have not only Title IX regulations, but New York state law mm -hmm. as well that we need to be compliant with. Um, we... In, in Title IX regulatory space, um, it has really, I would say, the true evolution into um, uh, the thinking about the equity of experience when it comes to gender and the conclusion that if you are subjected to sexual harassment or sexual assault, then you are not able to fully participate in the educational experience um, is a, a, the, I think, the um, uh, concept behind the evolution of Title IX from um, it, uh, still including sports and equity there, um, particularly with resources and um, in athletics. But uh, 2008, 2009, uh, 
you see changes with uh, different presidential administrations. So um, we have had uh, various regulations, uh, dear colleague letters that provide us with um, uh, our guidance with how we need to be compliant. We did experience uh, significant changes in 2020. Uh, the Biden administration had an open comment period uh, when uh, to reconsider some of the the regulations that were passed in in 2020. So things such as um, a, a live hearing with cross examination was new under Title IX regulations, um, and that came to into effect in 2020. And so uh, we were. Uh, the um, Office of Civil Rights announced that they were going to be releasing new regulations uh, after that open comment period in May of 2023. Uh, we received the announcement that it was going to be delayed till October of 2023. It is now November of 2023. <laughs> and so we do not have new guidance Um Usually I would get some sort of notification, yeah. but I haven't seen it yet. Um, so we say we don't have regulations um, for – but we anticipate those will be coming very soon. But, yes, it, it, it is inclusive of um, uh, uh, stalking, of uh, relationship violence, and uh, it, it, similar to what uh, Amari was um, saying related to our non-discrimination and anti-harassment, we have student policies, we have staff and faculty policies. Um, those are um, in, in place and uh, guided by the um, Department of Education and Office of Civil Rights guidance that we need to make sure that we're following as well as New York uh, state law. And so uh, those are captured in our policies, um, and we just try to be very, very consistent and think about how have we um, – every situation is unique. It really is. And so um, we try to make sure that we're paying attention to the uniqueness of every situation as well as remaining consistent with um, fairness and equity in the process so that um, – if you are uh, accused of a violation of policy, um, that you are able to have a fair and thorough investigative process, um, that you understand the information um, that has been reported or gathered as evidence, um, and uh, which potential policy violations that uh, the university is saying you may be in violation of. Um, whether you're a faculty, staff, or students. And and Title IX um, is where it's a little bit different from our non-discrimination and anti-harassment because um, in uh, that process, that needs to be a panel hearing. And that's where we have our um, prohibited conduct resource group, that the PCRG, that they are the ones who will ha have been trained um, by our office and understand um, how they need to hear the information that's being presented and um, that 
they need to uh, determine if there is a policy violation. And so after the PCRG, um, when when there is a violation of Title IX, that's when the PCRG prohibited con- conduct uh, resource group will be the ones who will uh, listen to the evidence and make a determination of a finding of responsibility. So that when someone comes to you with a concern, is it like, oh, this is Title IX? Like you just, you assign uh, cases to that that process? Um, yes. Usually we can tell by the type of concern whether or not it would fall under the Title IX process or um, the non-discrimination anti-harassment policy that we call ENDA for short. Okay. And uh, then we will track if there is a formal process in that way. Um, we do resolve a number of concerns that are reported to us informally. And somebody will say, I don't want a formal process. I don't want full investigation. I just want you to talk to the individual or I want you to help facilitate a conversation between us so that they can understand what happened. Title IX is very regulation driven. So uh, we have to make sure that we are, uh, if we receive information that falls under Title IX, it gets tracked under that process. And realizing that you've been here for a couple of years now, um, have you seen things increase or decrease in regards to Title IX concerns or complaints? Those have actually remained pretty consistent. So if anyone is ever curious, we are required by law every year to report any uh, – there are, in addition to Title IX concerns, there are other crimes that are reported – there is an annual uh, fire safety security report, and that information is reported, uh, the number of sexual assaults on campus. So those have remained fairly consistent with the reports that come to our office. A number of years ago, I want to bring this up, um, there was an Atlantic story about um, the inequity at Colgate um, when it came to reports of sexual assault. And it was something along the lines, there was a line in the story that said um, half of all um, sexual assault complaints were made against students of color, which sounds really awful. And 50% is a big number. However, what the Atlantic did not do was say that that 50% was two people. So it was a grand total. Your sample was four and their percentage was 50% two. So I felt like it was kind of unfair, but that doesn't mean that it's not true or there's not some kernel of truth to it. So do you find that complaints uh, – is there a concern or does your office look at complaints and how they might um, target underrepresented populations or not? So we know that in communities of color as well as uh, the queer and transgender community, reports of sexual assault are very underreported. Mm-hmm. We have, and it, and that is not unusual, at, particularly at predominantly white institutions like Colgate, because um, if there is a, a, a concern that's reported, it's a close community, and, um, and it just... All of the evidence that we know is that um, many uh, uh, folks who are 
experiencing sexualized violence know the person and are connected to the person who committed that sexualized violence against them. Um, now, while we know that they're underreported in those communities, we also know they are underreported in the white community as well. And so one of the things that has been really important uh, with Amy Gordon, who is our new Title IX coordinator, so she just started this summer, um, and then EW, who is uh, our new investigator, who also just started this summer, is um, it, they are both prioritizing getting out into the community and making sure that our uh, communities that have historically underreported are connected to our office, no resources know um, that they can have a conversation with the Title IX coordinator, and if they really do not want to proceed with a formal process, then they they can still access all of the support services. But if they do want to proceed with a formal process, that they understand what that is, what it entails, and we help prepare them for that. Um, and uh, the same thing in terms of uh, getting connected to the Greek organizations. And uh, I would say that those three communities in particular are communities that uh, I received information about when I first got here that really uh, we need to build a stronger relationship with. I feel that way with everyone, that we need to have a good connection to our office um, but it was particularly identified that uh, we have some relationship building to do with those communities. And so we're really prioritizing that. I want to close out with a 13th question, which is always something a little bit more fun. Um, but I'm, I, I kind of want to bring it back to something a little bit more hopeful at the end here, a little bit more upbeat uh, as we, as we kind of close out. But what are you most excited for uh, – most excited about with the office and the years ahead? I mean, you you kind of have a team now. You've assembled everyone together, the Voltron DEI office. And, uh, you know, what what's next? Where do you go from here? Yeah, I can kick us off. I am very excited about the energy that is on campus to do really meaningful and great and intentional DEI work. Um, that's been consistent. Um, I've done uh, effectively a mini listening tour, um, mini because Renee has led one before, and I'm like, please share what you share with Renee, but what is an update version of that? Um, <laughs> and it's been really meaningful for me to learn about, you know, what is keeping people involved? What are the ways in which Colgate has um, empowered, inspired, and sort of transformed not only our student experiences, but our faculty and staff experiences? Um with all the conversations that I've had, um, there are uh, tiny eye initiatives that I'm really looking forward to gearing up. Um, already mentioned um, that has been started through Rodney and Renee, the Inclusive Leadership Series, but also a continued um, training series for folks, um, what we're titling is like DEI 1.0, 2.0. Those kinds of works uh, really excite me to see the ways in which folks would love to expand their competency, their humility in um, topics related to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. 
Um, and I'm just, I'm really excited to be a part of the community to help facilitate and to, to help strategically lead that work for Colgate to um, reach our, what will be our fourth century plan, um, <laughs> which obviously is not going to be dropped anytime soon, but um, it's a very exciting thing. Nice. I think what I would add in is that when thinking about this kind of work, I always think about the structural experiences and the social experiences. So structural in terms of what are the resources that people would not only love access to, but need access to, especially on the lines of identity. And I'm really excited about how the DEI plan allows us to take that structural approach so that we are able to support everyone on our campus, our students, our faculty, our staff. And part of part of that is we have folks who are brilliantly seeing those challenges already and anticipating that and making those plans. And there are likely things that we will learn more through our conversations. So when Amari brought up the Inclusive Leadership Series, one of the things that excites me the most is seeing how do we support folks to build that dialogue capacity so that we're learning from each other, so that we're really embracing the different perspectives that we have. And then we're also getting to the heart of the challenges so that we can go, all right, now that I understand this piece that was brought here, it'll be so much easier for me to implement these structural pieces so that in a year or in two years, whenever that sort of timeline can be, the next set of staff members, faculty members, students don't have to even worry about that because we had that conversation and I was able to receive it and then able to, to work strategically to make that a reality on our campus. So I'm excited to see how those two pieces will come together or come to life even more. It's already been happening, but I'm excited for the next iteration of those solutions. Nice. I will, uh, I'll ask one more question. I lied. I said it was going to be the last question, but um, any books you folks can recommend about the work that you do? If For people that are very curious about DEI work, either on college campuses or just in general, is there anything you would recommend? I've, I've tried to include this more in our podcast because I know our audience loves to read and uh, if somebody wanted to dig in, I don't know if there's anything that you could suggest. Um, oh, there are so many books. Um, I, you know what? You know how I'm going to answer this question, though, okay. is I'm going to answer the one that what's next on my reading list Ooh, okay. that I want to read is one that I just got. So Rhonda McGee's uh, It's Mindfulness and Racial Equity. And so I'm excited to read that one. All right. Suggestions? Two books uh, that sort of has resonated a ton with me from my uh, previous years. Um, a book by um, James Baldwin uh, titled The Fire Next Time. I think that's been really impactful and an empowering message for me um, for just understanding how do we get here, honestly. Um, and then uh, a book by Bell Hooks um, titled uh, Where We Stand Class Matters. Um, it may not be exactly that title, but if you type that into the Google, <laughs> the Google will take you to exactly what I'm referencing to. Great. Thank you. Yeah. One last book that I'll add is the current book on my reading list, which is now, once again, Google this for the exact title of it. <laughs> but it's something along the lines of The Science and Art of Belonging. It's by Jeffrey Cohen. And so what he's done is compile the, the research he's done, a lot of it in academic institutions on belonging and the effects that it has on folks, especially on students. And uh, that's where uh, I cited research earlier in our conversation. And that was one of the, the nuggets that I got to pull from, from reading that book. Nice. 
Renee, Amari, Rodney, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for having us. All right. Tell your friends and family about the podcast. If you have any questions, you can always email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13 the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive Producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events, L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host, Dan DeVries. And audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com. 